Unscripted Equity Curiosity, Episode 18. My name is Andrew Friedman, Communications Secretary at Hedgeye, and I am joined with Ami Joseph, Hedgeye Tech, and Felix Wang, Hedgeye China. Today, we're going to follow up with Ami based on a few topics of last week's podcast related to shorter-term trends uh, in tech, what he's seeing across his space, both from a uh, data and fundamental perspective, as well as dig into kind of the longer-term themes and cycles that he's seeing that's helping inform his investment process and idea generation. Uh, so it was a great conversation, guys. Uh, last uh, recording, I really enjoyed it. Um, Ami, you know, tech, it's all you, man. You're on the hot seat today. Uh, so maybe to kick things off, you know, what is the signal that you're, see- you're seeing in the data from the companies that you follow um, about specifically related to Q3? And then we'll kind of, t- you know, pull it back a little bit and talk about longer term. But, you know, obviously, we're in a very interesting time here coming out of COVID, and we're starting to see a lot of norm, you know, trends normalize. Um, and I'm curious if you're seeing that as well in, in your space. And, uh, yeah, I'll just let you run with it. Okay. Um, so on the short-term stuff, I'll mention that, first of all, SAP already reported, which is obviously a big enterprise software and technology company, and they crushed it and raised and they raised specifically in the right area, so all of that was good. Um, and I think that probably many people will take a bullish read across the group on that. I would not. I would take that as a side note because SAP um, last third quarter, third quarter of 2020, fourth quarter of 2020 was still suffering on a lag of the doldrums of COVID and the reset from COVID and actually had really bad things to say and did a huge reset and killed the stock and all this kind of stuff. Um, and they're also now beginning their own journey, which is this like conversion of their core to the cloud. It's a very conservative company that existed, shifting to the cloud for a very long time due to latency and other things. Um, and their engineering team is finally prepared to transition from a, an on-premise uh, based software to a hosted software. And that is a new, new thing at SAP, and that is going to drive all of the results and everything related to their stock for the next, like, five years. Um, if they are successful with that, it would be huge. So I, don't, I would take that aside. What we showed, and then, so aside from that, we don't have any companies that have reported yet that are directly relevant. Um, we showed in our tech themes deck on September 23rd that we had this very unique way of modeling the sector, which we had basically learned from Keith, which you can call it, like dynamic two-year effects-based modeling. Um, and we had done that, applied that math back in June, and we had a two to 175 companies rolled up and kind of imagining this as to be like an enterprise technology sector. So 170, revenue of 175 companies quarterly. Um, and we did that in June, and we showed that 2Q and 3Q were going to be much better than the street in terms of year-over-year growth rates which would also be good for stocks because of the correlation to multiples. And I'm told that was, that was good. It was a good directional lead. Um, we showed it again uh, on September 23rd in our themes deck. And this time we didn't get such a good outlook. We got uh, the low street outlook for the fourth quarter of this year to the second quarter of next year. And that's basically the fact that in enterprise tech, you had a big pullback from the first half of 2020. You had all the pent-up spending from that period come back in. If you do the math on taking that stuff out and kind of like evening that process uh, of the cyclical, cyclical B on the bottom and the cyclical adding it back in on the other side, 
and you take that back out and you just model like trend line, what is trend line for the group, uh, you still see nice growth for the group in the fourth quarter, first quarter, and second quarter of next year, but definitely a lot slower than we've been and also slower than what the street is estimating. So, um, and with obviously the tie into multiples, it, it's not a healthy, it's not a great outlook. We had a nice pullback. I mean, this was like not like planned. Like I had wanted to be bullish, um, and so I, I wasn't. It wasn't like I went after being bearish or something like that. We've had a good pullback in stocks since late September. So I don't know. Maybe there's um, uh, maybe that's in. No, I, I, it, I'm not. No, I'm never good at like kind of like you know. Yeah. Figuring out when when the bad short term bad news is in whether there's more to go, I, I, I guess I still would lean on that top-down analysis and say I would, I would expect things to get a little bit tricky here. Got it. And I guess, like, SAP is interesting, right? Like, because, I mean, and correct me if I'm wrong on me, but, like, to my knowledge, they're kind of like a sleepy, older, you know, enterprise software company, right? Like, you know, like, the share shifts to the cloud, they've been, I'm assuming they've been trying to acquire and do things to kind of you know, I don't want to say like fix what they have, but maybe make modernize it. Um, and you know, I, I guess like how do you think about enterprise tech and SaaS broadly, and like like where we are, like in that cycle? Like, is what's going on at SAP like just a short term phenomenon, or do you think there's actually like legs here where like you can see like the revival of enterprise tech over a multiple like, of a longer term duration? Or is, or is this question that I'm asking you just totally silly and off base and not relevant? If that's the case, I'll ask. No, no, it's perfect. <laughs> no, it's perfect because it's perfect, it's perfect because like maybe SAP is like the last holdout in the conversion to the cloud, or or the last major holdout in the conversion to the cloud, and it's because you know their engineering team was you know it's always been extremely conservative. And there are real, like they are a mission critical system that large conglomerate, international manufacturing heavy companies rely on. And if their stuff goes down, like, you know, bye bye, you know, bye bye, a slice of the global fortune 6,000, right? So um, it's, they had to be very conservative, but as a result, they had, and then they had an American CEO, who was CEO for a very long time at SAP, and he, I think he was, I'm kind of like, you know, I'm wasn't in behind the curtain on these conversations, but knowing him, knowing the company, uh, knowing the technology, the, the, the behind the scenes, I think, was that he was very acquisitive. People used to make fun of him for, for buying shiny objects and windows. Um, he was very acquisitive of anything cloud, of anything next gen, of anything growing fast, because I think because he knew that his core team wasn't going to give him the product that would carry the company in the future and wasn't going to help him with multiple and wasn't going to help him with growth. And so he basically had to go and buy that stuff and address up SAP in order to give them something to talk about with cloud and with growth and all those kinds of, those kinds of things. So he was buying products that, I think he wasn't, of course, offended by, you know, external companies being run in the cloud and external products being run in the cloud that maybe with cloud that maybe weren't uh, mission critical, you know, like Concur from SAP and things like that, um, which if there's a latency, it's not a big deal, it's not the end of the world. So I think that um, 
I think that was the situation for a really long time. And finally, uh, under the term of, under the time of the new CEO, uh, they, the engineering team there has finally, you know, given them the green light to go all the way towards cloud. And of course, like it's funny because when they announced it a year ago, and they cleared the decks and they reported bad earnings and all those things I just mentioned a minute ago, and, and they crushed the stock. The stock I think went from 140 euros down to below 100 euros, like within like two days. Um, the um, the buy side, when I, you know, typically like the playbook has been, by the way, any co- company that announces it's going from on-prem to cloud, you go you long that stock because it's like an exciting, et cetera, et cetera. It's just, just good. At this point, everyone's learned. Adobe was the first, like, you know, 10 years ago. And like now it's like a playbook, most people know. Um, but no one wanted to do that with SAP because like, you know, there were legitimate reasons why it wouldn't work. To move to the cloud. But of course, like, if they're con- super conservative engineers who've resisted cloud for more than a decade are finally saying, like, yeah, we're all in on cloud. Like, I think it's going to be okay. Like, it figures it out. Like, investors, maybe smart hedge fund people are really smart, but like, they don't, they haven't, they're not like ensconced in the issue this way, right? Like, like one of those things, like, I know better than uh, SAP's core engineering team. So, this is like a huge opportunity, probably still stock, by the way. And this is like something that's going to fuel the company for a long time. And technically, they could go now and like unload all those acquisitions that the previous CEO made. Like they could just go and sell them all down um, and IPO them all or whatever, sell them to private equity or whatnot, and raise up a bunch of cash if they wanted, drive a dividend. We wrote about this like a year, like early in, in the year. But anyway, that's the kind of like a very bespoke thing happening with SAP, and they are the last. Or one of the last. I can't think of too many others who are yet to make this like massive transition. Um, so that's kind of like on the on that front. It's like it's like the last of this big trend that Adobe started a very long time ago. Um, so that's kind of like that doesn't tell you what's going to happen next. It tells you maybe what's going to happen next for SAP, but it doesn't tell you what's going to happen next for all of enterprise software. Got it. And then I guess maybe just I'm just curious if you're seeing it in, in your space at all, and maybe. You know, we just think about our, our sectors a little bit differently here. But, like, one of the things that I've seen over the last kind of six or 12 months has been, um, like, this acceleration and growth that we've seen, like, economic growth coming out of COVID and all the stimulus. Like, it's kind of, like, revived a lot of zombie companies that, like, secularly challenge not great products, but, like, are putting up fundamental results, accelerations and KPIs that just – we haven't seen in a very long time. And it's hard, I think, for a lot of investors, and myself included, to kind of figure out, like, is this, you know, just because the market's better? Is it, like, actually because the the management team's executing? Are they taking market share? Or is this just, like, really we're in this, like, very unusual economic backdrop where a rising tide lifts all boats and it's making even the worst companies look good, relatively speaking? And... You know, I, I'm curious, like, if you're seeing anything, if, if that resonates with anything that you're seeing across your space at all. Yes. Um, I want to give you a preview because I think you could look at all my sector and look at what happened from October of 2020 through February of 21 when the crap rallied hard. It's just like the biggest crap rally ever for the group because what happened was, like there were early COVID beneficiaries, obviously Zoom, for example, 
whose stocks like went down in COVID, but like not for very long. <laughs> it was up pretty much right away. And then like on a waterfall basis, like then there was Twilio, you know what I'm saying? Like then there was Slack and there was like, you just go along the way. And there was like, you know, and by October, I think investors realized that digital transformation and acceleration of that kind of spending and the shift to, you know, the COVID is actually causing like something that was actually really, really good for enterprise companies, a big acceleration. And so that, it wasn't just cyclical, there was also transformative element. And so the crack rallied really, really hard because it was like a catch up. It was like, holy shit, which cloud stock or which enterprise tech hasn't rallied yet by period. Like that was really the only deciding factor for what should go up. And <laughs> that was it. So, so you, you can go look at, at that and kind of like let yourself um, understand the contours of what you're dealing with and facing with now, because it'll give you like a sneak preview for it. And I would, and I would say that what's going to create some um, difficulty in the short term for you of picking your way through it, Andrew, is that Wall Street loves a good narrative, uh, you know, like, hey, uh, like right now, for example, just a, a headline that just came out recently was like Macy's, you know, there are investors, activists who want Macy's to sell their whatever billion dollar e-commerce business as an e-commerce business as a multiple and whatever. Story shit, right? It's like, would do any owners, do any investors in Macy's or people who are short Macy's, whatever, like not know that they have an e-commerce business? Like, I'm, I'm like, really? Like, you know, this is like, this is story stuff. It's like, oh, we separated out. The multiple will go towards the multiple of the rest of the group. This is Wall Street yeah. who has skinned a cat, trying to skin cat again from a different angle. So this is, and by the way, the biggest people blast away to the end were the fee takers from the whole thing. So, so you're going to have yeah. a lot of narratives around, right? This is a new well, that's thing. a bubble. So, I mean, what, you, what you're describing, I mean, I think in retrospect, I mean, it's still early, but I guess we'll know like looking back a few years from now. But, you know, the whole SPAC mania what you're describing in terms of like financial engineering, like getting creative on trying to extract value from pretty crappy assets or something that's like questionable, like, like in my space, like Redbox SPAC is, is, is coming back, right? Um, AT&T is seeing like a really big boost in like subscriber trends, which, you know, there's other factors that play there. Um, but it's, it's just amazing just to see like all the, all the behavior um, and, and all this financial engineering that, that's going that's going on. Um, so I'm glad I'm glad so you're seeing it in your, so in your space really too. So that's a really good point because it, it really is just like the spec. You know what it is? It's like remember Kaiser's space? What was that called again? Um, MLPs. MLPs. This was Wall Street sat around the table and was like, hmm, how can we make a lot of money right now? Ooh, let's pull these assets out of oil and gas companies and call them separate companies. And, like, <laughs> and Kaiser, it was so moving enough that Kaiser could actually build a whole sector out of it research-wise. And it was all bullshit. It was all lies, right? Or most 95% of it. So the same thing in the specs. So there are going to be stocks that are the real deal, right? And there are going to be stocks that are just like, these should never have gone public. We're not meant to go public. Either they, they were has-beens or they were not yet these and they were not yet. Anyway, all of that mess. But in your space, what I would make a category for yourself of three things, okay? One is really, really the current environment has changed this business. Like it is being consumed differently or it is opening a new market for them. Tier one, okay, that's 
a whole new way of thinking about things. There's a lot of research that has to go into it. By the way, the narrative is all of these companies have changed, right? The matter changed, the whole business, whatever. It's not all of them. It's a very small subset. But if you can find the subset, whoa, winners. And you can do a lot of interesting work around what sector are they opening up, what field, what market is being unlocked now that will drive acceleration for them on a sustaining basis and the change in the business overall. So that's category one, tier one. Tier two is, it's just cyclical. You had really, really bad hurt. Now you have return to normal. And the problem is you have to remember that on the return to normal, you also have pent-up spending, right? And pent-up spending happens like in all kinds of ways. It could even happen with movies, it could, whatever. Like people are just dying to get to the movies, they're dying to get to the whatever, to get to the restaurants, whatever it is. And they go more often than they did before, something like that. They have excess savings from the period where they weren't going. And you have to factor all those in. Those are just cyclical factors. But this is tier two, which is the good companies who manage to do interest, who use the crisis of the lack of demand to actually help their companies to become their change, their unit economics. Now they're more profitable on the other side, whatever it is. So even though there's going to be some cyclical, there was a cyclical down, now we're getting the cyclical up and the pent up spending. On the other side of all of that, they're actually better companies. So point to point, they'll have, whether it's measured on operating margin or cash flow, whatever it is, whatever envelope you were looking at or the product got a lot better, like something point to point, still the same business, still the same company. It's not unlocking a new market, but it's a better company. So that's like tier two. Um, and then there's tier three, which is the bullshit, which is like just like their, they went, their stock is going up because they're all going up and it's getting the, the cyclical benefit because they're all getting the cyclical benefit. But during the pullback, this managing team was asinine and stupid and lack of knowledge and foresight. And just the same thing, they, they were, you know, cutting spending on the way down and accelerating spending on the way up and like totally going to trip over themselves and make a big mess. So like that's tier three. Mm -hmm. And I would say if you can bucket those, your companies into those three buckets, you'll figure yeah. out like, wow, which it's like, this will help you with the new normal. And you can just say it when people are like, oh, you don't get it, the new normal. You're like, no, 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 I'm in the new normal. I've got my alpha for the new normal. I've got my winners. I've got my just okay, but you know, better than before. And I've got my like total figures. So like that'll help you like, you know, contextualize yeah. the new normal into like the mm -hmm. research. Got it. Nope, that's super helpful. I, have, I think I've, I like to think I've done a lot of that so far. I think uh came out some new ideas recently that probably fit within that framework. Um, so maybe just, uh, you know, we're kind of getting towards the end here, but, um, you know, I, just maybe taking a big picture view, right? We talked a lot about like Q3 trends and kind of the last 12 months and the cyclicality. Um, but, you know, you also mentioned, Ami, like, bucket number one, like long-term winners where this change like fundamentally improved their business, right? Like unlocked uh, a, a new secular trend. And, uh, you know, last uh, podcast, you know, we talked, uh, Felix and I talked kind of about like maybe five, 10 year trends, right? Like mega trends, um, which not all investors can invest towards, right? Because, you know, everyone's concerned about tomorrow, but it's, it can present a really large opportunity if you have the duration and the process on your side. So when you sit back and you look at kind of tech, like, you know, where are we now? Like we had what, like the big SaaS cycle, you know, everything's like now machine learning and AI. Um, but is it real? Like, at least in my space, like it just seems like it's, you know, everyone's saying that they're doing machine learning and AI, but like, 
some are doing it better than others and you know, how does it really work? And you know, I, I just kind of love to kind of pick your brain and see like what you think are the real durable trends kind of over the next five to 10 years versus maybe something that flames out because um, it doesn't even have a use case or you know, the economics are just not there. Okay. I will bucket this into a few different puzzle pieces. Um, the first is just this sort of like very um, big picture long-term trend, which is that in the consumer world, um, thanks to Google, um, we can all, like when we need to know something, we just like go open a browser and we type it in. You know, how old is Tom Brady? You know, whatever. Whatever we want to know, it's all there. In the enterprise world, um, even that kind of like purely commoditized knowledge is not there um, in the same accessible way. And it is, um, you know, obviously Google has, has a bunch of stuff out there that you could search and find, but it's not the same. Wikipedia has a bunch of stuff you could search and find. There's still a really, it's still a huge immaturity in that world. And when you think about it, this kind of data or knowledge, it's like, it shouldn't be where there's like a moat around that. It shouldn't be, it, it's, it's just the same way like Tom Brady's age is not something that you're going to pay for to know. But there's a lot of stuff in the corporate world that uh, should not, you know, should be kind of like just open knowledge. And I think that there's, in, in the corporate world, um, if you just go back to the very beginning of enterprise spending, where people were buying these giant like IBM machines with, um, with punch cards in them that were, um, you could walk by them and you could hear them, the cards actually clicking because they were punching holes in these cards and that was the memory system. Um, you've, you've had two, three, four generations now of like storage systems for corporate information that all become like either locked into that corporation, obviously, or um, locked into a system within that corporation. And what's happening now is that this battle, which is a little bit being described as machine learning, um, is, is and because machine learning might be the tool that helps you unlock the data world and be, make it into a giant thing. But we're like in early innings of major changes in the data world that instead of just, oh, access all your data, we're actually in the beginning of a change into like access any data with a query. Now that query like, is still like not- democratization? Like democratization? Like, is that way. kind of like independent, like breaking down yeah, like the walled gardens and like uh, data lakes uh, and all that stuff uh, or am I- uh, Well, it's, I wouldn't say it's gonna be free, okay? I wouldn't say it's going to be free, um, but it's going to be accessible. And once it's accessible, then you can start to economically price data because some data will be really worth it. And some data will be like, ah, you know, there's 800,000 providers of this. It should be a penny or a zero. Like this is a lost leader. And so once you actually get all that data into a place that can be searched, that's when you can start to have this real unlock of the data category. And so we're still in 
getting this data to the place where it can be quote unquote searched, which the word here is query. And today, the only company that's actually doing that is Snowflake, but there's a whole ecosystem that's battling with Snowflake on the tools like Databricks or Azure now has its own tools fighting with Databricks or, of course, AWS has their own. And Google BigQuery is making a huge push here. And obviously, guess how Google enables this organization of all information in the world in the consumer world? Well, it's BigQuery. That's why BigQuery is so good because it's been battle-hardened on the consumer side for decades. And it is a fantastic and amazing tool. And so the battle lines are drawn here between all of these. We're actually going to have a speaker um, a week from now. A week from now? Next? I don't know. I'm, uh, maybe I'm misremembering the date. Um, but we're having a speaker call um, coming up very soon. We're going to have three speakers, actually, on this topic, uh, going at it from different angles, from the Snowflake angle, from the Google angle, um, and from the Databricks angle, and about how what is, what is the battlefield of the toolkits now, but really where are they going? Like what big, massive change are they bringing? And the thing that's behind them, like if, if any of these tools are successful, or all of them, or one of them, what will happen is that that data will be available. And once it's available, then at that point, there are changes in what, how people pay for data, how people access data, what people use data for, what data becomes valuable, what data becomes table stakes. So that becomes a really interesting future for the enterprise. And that also will be very, very important for the generation that comes after that or alongside it, obviously these things all grow up in parallel to some degree and not sequentially, but like really sequentially in this case, in terms of size, which is software writing software or the ultimate goal of automation, which is that software will actually uh, be able to make your day easier. That you'll make a note to your software automation. Hey, I need you to go do this thing. And it's, speaks your language, it does your thing, it spits it out, it creates this automation, you and your team are looking at it, all right, awesome, what can we do with it? How does this change our view? It makes you faster, it makes you stronger, it makes you more able, and so on and so forth. It makes the world more complicated as well because it's table stakes, everybody will have it, so your perspective and your uniqueness and the way that you approach the world will be even more important in terms of like really owning down to what makes Andrew Friedman special and what makes your view of the world special and what have you learned in this life that you can actually share with others and bring to the table, all those things, all of that is a very long-term unlock. Um, that's the big picture trend and that view of data wraps in software writing, software and automation, all of those are all kind of, I think, going towards this place where we're going now um, with data. And I would say the only other thing I would mention, uh, because we did start with short-term data, is I also, as a child of uh, the period where I was born, which I won't say, and <laughs> somebody who's been investing since the late 90s, I, and has been through periods where uh, tech was told like no mas, um, I would say the other thought that I have in my head is the word saturation, which is not a word that has been spoken um, in enterprise technology. A bad word for, on it. For a, a, at a least word. a decade. Yeah, for at least a decade. Um, but it happens sometimes. It happens when enterprises are far along something called digital transformation. They are spending 
large amounts of money on it. They are spending incremental amounts of money on it, but they pretty much know the tools that they need right now. There's always some new flavor. There's always some new thing that they're adding, but it becomes the new stuff becomes a minority relative to the existing stuff. And within the existing sphere, they start to understand how to automate or how to operationalize. And so they go from it costing $40,000 a year to $4,000 because they need some of the licenses to free because they don't need a seat for everybody. And they are able to manage around certain costs or they find that the VCs have funded some new company that's giving half of it away for free, half of the functionality away for free. And they can leverage that and optimize what they're doing across a spectrum of different offerings and they can be um, more nimble. So it's not a long-term trend saturation, but demand and supply is something that hasn't mattered in a long time in software. So it's probably stupid of me to mention because, hey, you could have said it a year ago, two years ago, three years ago, four years ago, and it wouldn't have mattered. Um, I'm raising it now as a short-term concern that I have, which could help deflate a little bit of spending. Um, it wouldn't change the view what I said a minute ago about the long-term in terms of the data about being accessible and the access and the march to that data and the players who are enabling that data and what, what comes after that data being accessible is the automation and the software writing software. So I think all of that is still very much at play and companies are still on the long march of using software to operationalize their companies, which means they spend more on software and less on other things. So all of that is still very true. It's just that there are, um, uh, what is it, ovulations in the past, there's, there's times where those things accelerated, decelerated. There are times where companies kind of like have the tools that they need in the short term, mm -hmm. and there are times where they have to accelerate spending. So this is, this is kind of like the back and forth where, um, where we have to pay attention also to kind of like a general demand and supply uh, category. Hey, Ami, hey, Felix, if I can, uh, sorry, uh, hey, I just want to kind of jump in. Uh, I know we are running out of time, but I, I had a question for you, and you're, you've already uh, established some incredible insights into your into your coverage space. But in three to five years out, right? I was curious, um, since you mentioned you know enterprise players like SAP and others, are they thinking about like the China cloud market by any chance? Because the the, the cloud spending growth in China has out the rest of the world. So I was wondering in your coverage space, are there any um, you know, European or American companies that are, are talking about accessing this growing opportunity in China, despite what's going on with the, the data controls and the regulatory hurdles? Well, when enterprise tech approaches China, it's always like very gingerly. And it's like usually let's have a partnership with Tencent or Baidu and let's license our software to them to license it out. Let's create something that they can then go and resell. So that's a lot of the, um, the, the marriage with China is very ginger for a lot of these companies. Microsoft to some degree has figured this out. Intel has figured it out, but, um, but there's not, not all, like a lot of companies are still, we see China as a little bit of a black box in terms of a go-to-market strategy. Perfect. Thank you. All right. All right, guys. Well, I think we're going to wrap it up there. Uh, Ami, actually, I, I do want to do one thing before we end it. Uh, maybe like a little 
uh, word affiliation here. Um, so sure. I'm going to give you, I'm going to say three words, and I want you to spit out the, the top, the company that comes to mind. Okay. Uh, think we can do that? Sure. Uh, all right. Future. AWS. Saturation. UiPath. Fad. Collaboration. Okay, cool. All right, well, we'll leave it at that. Thanks, Ami, for going through that. It was really insightful, um, helpful uh, for both uh, my process and how I think about the world, too. And it sounds like Felix got some value out of it as well. Um, so uh, thank you, and thanks, everyone, uh, for tuning in. And we will catch you back here for next episode of Unscripted Equity Curiosity. This presentation is informational only. None of the information contained herein constitutes an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security or investment vehicle, nor does it constitute investment recommendation or legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice by Hedgeye or any of its employees, officers, agents, or guests. This information is presented without regard for individual investment preferences or risk parameters and is general, non-tailored, non-specific information. This content is based on information from sources believed to be reliable. Hedgeye is not responsible for errors, inaccuracies, or omissions of information. The opinions and conclusions contained in this report are those of the individual expressing those opinions and conclusions and are intended solely for the use of Hedgeye subscribers and the authorized recipients of the content. All investments entail a certain degree of risk and financial instrument prices can fluctuate based on several factors including those not considered in the preparation of the content. Consult your financial professional before investing. The information contained herein is protected by United States and foreign copyright laws and is intended solely for the use of its authorized recipient. Access must be provided directly by Hedgeye. Redistribution or republication is strictly prohibited. For more detail, please refer to the Terms of Service at Hedgeye.com slash Terms of Service.